You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar on India's fiscal response to the corona crisis. This is the latest in a series of events being held at ODI, looking at different aspects of how middle and lower income countries are responding to the corona crisis. This series of events is very much looking at the decisions and policy measures being taken now. The measures being taken now are going to have lasting and significant impacts across households, firms, the economy, and indeed potentially the, the whole social contract. Um, if we get policy responses wrong now, the costs of rebuilding later are going to be much, much, much higher. And so here at ODI, we're looking to run events that share lessons, where we discuss how countries are responding, uh, and promote a discussion on these topics. Earlier this month, we had a first event on targeting relief payments in Bangladesh, um, while today's event will be focused on fiscal policy response in India. Before we start, I want to stress that these webinars are intended to be interactive conversations. We're not looking for television shows, so we will be taking questions from people watching, uh, we'll be checking uh, the ODI website and also CPR's Facebook site. So please do get in touch to ask questions to our panelists. You can also tweet at hashtag C19Responses. So uh, in terms of today's event, I am delighted to welcome uh, Ratin Roy, the director of the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy. I, I should say welcome back, really. Ratin has been a long-term friend of ODI and was, was in London uh, in February on a, for an event on PFM and service delivery. Delighted to welcome Ratin here today. And also welcome to Yamini Ayyar. Yamini Ayyar is the President and Chief Executive of the Centre for Policy Research. Yamini's research focuses on social policy and development and, and was founder of the Accountability Initiative at Centre for Policy Research. And it's a great pleasure to jointly host this event today with uh, the Centre for Policy Research and the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy. So before I go over to uh, Ratin and Yamini with specific questions, I thought it would be useful just to give a quick background as a, as a framing to the discussions in respect to India's response to the crisis to date, or at least my understanding of the response. So I think uh, it's fair to say that um, India moved relatively quickly to try and contain the spread of the pandemic. So since uh, the end of March, a, a strict lockdown was put in place that is, that is still largely in place, in, in fact. But as with countries around the world, uh, the, uh, this kind of lockdown policy to contain the virus is having major reverberations on economies and livelihoods. And I think one of the most visible manifestations we've seen of this has been the plight of millions of migrant workers in India who have overnight lost their jobs and income um, and been trying to return to their homes. 
The government of India has come under some criticism over the scale and speed of fiscal response that's needed to cushion against the impacts of the lockdown. Uh, and initially, uh, um, a relief package was announced estimated to be approximately 1% of GDP. Uh, and some questions have been asked over the scale of that crisis, uh, that response relative to some other um, responses we've seen elsewhere. But just last week, a seemingly much larger economic support package was announced that's been dubbed Stimulus 2.0. Uh, but the emphasis of this new proposal has been very much on self-reliance and contrast with a narrative seen in Europe where uh, we see the state acting as an insurer of last resort. The headline figure for the proposal seems to be substantial, so equivalent to 10% of GDP. But when digging into the figures, uh, much of that financial relief is being provided by, by the banking sector, through credit facilities, loan guarantees, and the fiscal part of the relief package seems to be much smaller, at approximately 1% of GDP. So this new package has also come under some critical discussion within India. Um, but in defence of the Indian uh, government, the finance ministry is facing a pretty horrible set of choices right now. They don't have the US Federal Reserve standing behind them. Uh, they're also coming into the, the crisis with a, uh, a fairly weak economic performance. And it's not clear that the kind of you know, do whatever it takes narrative that has been put forward to describe the fiscal response in the US or Europe, for example, is necessarily transferable to the Indian context. And so in the discussion today, we're really going to be thinking about how the government might approach these difficult choices. What in some senses are the kind of the, le the least bad options that are available. So without further ado, I would like to kind of turn, turn over to uh, Ratin and Yamini, but Ratin, perhaps before we get into discussions around India's specific response, I thought it would be useful just to hear from you a bit about um, the macroeconomics of dealing with this crisis. The response to the pa a pandemic where sectors of the economy has, are actually being shut down poses a very specific policy challenge. And I, I know you've used the an an analogy previously around a, a warlike economy. Perhaps you could expound what you mean on, on about that and, and why that might be a relevant way to think about a fiscal response to the crisis. Yes, Mark, thank you. And uh, thank you to ODI for hosting this uh, event. Uh, what I meant by a warlike economy is that in any situation like a war, where it becomes necessary to gather the entire economy around a single objective. In the case of a war, it is to defeat the enemy and deal with the consequences of actions to defeat the enemy. In the case of this pandemic, it is to end the pandemic and deal with the actions, the consequences of the actions necessary to end the pandemic, such as lockdowns. In both situations, the macroeconomic objectives of government initially are twofold. 
and not necessarily the same as the human development objective that which I'm making a macroeconomic point. So the macroeconomic objective is to make sure that national wealth is not destroyed and that the national income is protected to the maximum extent possible. In wars, enemy aircraft, enemy munitions destroy national wealth. In a pandemic, the inability to use national wealth, but the need to continue to maintain it and pay for it, results in an erosion of national wealth. In a war, national income is destroyed by the fact that people can't do what they were doing every day, and many of them have to join the war effort as soldiers. In a pandemic situation like this, national income is destroyed by the fact that people cannot go to work. And even if they did, there was no demand for what they would join producing. That's why I use the analogy war-like economy. And in a war-like economy, therefore, what the government needs to do is not stimulus. That's what you do when you have a business cycle downturn. What the government needs to do is to support national income and support national wealth to the maximum extent possible. In addition, the government needs to use warlike instruments to maintain the supply chain as people withdraw from work and as people's ability to work together diminishes. And this involves not just government machinery, but the armed forces, community organized. So that's a warlike economy. The macroeconomic metric by which to judge a warlike economy's success or failure is not the fiscal deficit, is not a reasonable inflation rate, it's not variable inflation. It is the current economy, but India doesn't have that problem. You judge it by judging the extent to which you have stemmed loss of national wealth and national income. So very quickly, you stem the loss of national income the way that, say, the UK has done it, by making sure that if people are not able to work, you compensate them for not being able to work, and then that raises aggregate demand, and that brings revenue to firms, and that's a good thing. As opposed to human development objective was give, give them money so they don't starve. So I'm being very particular to say here that while that is laudable, that's not what I'm talking about. You protect national wealth by making sure that company that is unable to finance its working capital debt gets public assistance in so doing until the pandemic situation expires. A combination of these two, protect national wealth, protect national income, minimizes loss of GDP. And that's, if you like, your overarching macro framework. Okay, so very clear in terms of kind of a, a principle to think about um, an approach to responding to the crisis. But how would you say that squares with the realities of actually financing a response? I know there's been some commentary in the financial press, for example, that you know, India needs to worry about its uh, perceived um, credit ratings, etc. So can the government just do whatever it takes and use whatever financial means needed to preserve national wealth? No. The government must do what it takes and we must to the maximum extent possible, find the resources to let them do what it takes. So in the particular Indian context, if the government had decided that it was capable, which it has not, if it had decided that it was capable of providing extensive income support and support to national wealth like the UK has done or Australia has done, 
And if the government then turn to me as a public finance specialist and say, where do I find the money? I'd say I have 4% of GDP waiting for you. I know you're going to lose tax revenues, and you're probably going to lose about 3 to 4% of GDP, so I can give you as much money at least as we're budgeted for. And I can give you more depending on how you spend it. So here's our give the government money. First, this crisis is happening at the beginning of the financial year. Let me, let, me, let me go back. There are three ways in which you can finance anything of this sort. One is to convert stocks into flows, just like privatization. You sell something, you use that money to make your payments now, right? That's stock flow conversion. The other is you borrow from other actors, economic actors, either domestically or, or abroad. And the third is you borrow from your own future. The first proposition can actually be used to immediately mobilize finance. Central Bank in India is sitting on reserves uh, which are close to $800 billion, uh, rupees, sorry. My proposition was you can take at least half of that and give it to central government in the first instance, and central government could then give it to the states, but we'll come to that, some of it. But that wouldn't cost the central government anything. Why? Because the interest paid on that raising means advance accrues as income to the central bank, the Reserve Bank of India. And that income then either stays with the Reserve Bank, which is fully owned by the government, or comes back to the government in the form of dividend. So all you're doing is using a stock of resources to plug a hole in the finances. But you cannot run down that stock infinitely. Here comes the second piece of the puzzle, as Yamini knows. Government of India is a very bad spender of money. So across the government system, we have about a trillion rupees sitting outside the treasury, but not spent. That is, sitting in the bank accounts of spending agencies across the country. Lots of states, but not insignificantly the center. Not insignificant at all. Those unspent balances, if you could mobilize even half of them, you could then use to extinguish the diminution in the stock liabilities of RBI. And that's getting on with about 1 to 1.5% of GDP. The second proposition I had was when the government borrows for COVID, it must say it is borrowing for COVID and therefore that gives it the luxury of designing a product that's rather different from COVID from the vanilla product, which is you go to the market, you know, you borrow from essentially your own banks. And I proposed something that actually was used by the UK very effectively and was extinguished only as, if I recall right, in 2013, which is the console. And a console is a product where you issue a bond and you offer a very attractive rate of interest, possibly 2% above inflation. But you, you, you say up front that I want to repay the bond to you now. When the pandemic subsides, I shall tell you in different tranches how you will get repaid. This has the advantage of, of tapping into something that exists in a pandemic, which is relatively rich people and even people with jobs who are insecure about their money, A, and because of the pandemic are unable to spend their money, very bored like, right? How, when was the last time you went to a restaurant? When was the last time you went for a holiday to wherever? When was the last time you took your kids out to have this, right? So all that money is, is slushing it on. And what you want from that money is you want it to give you a rate of return. You don't really want it back. And if it's the government that's making you the software, it's software. It works well. Over time, it works well for government because the monetary value of that data actually starts eroding. But people are quite happy getting, you know, a 6% rate of return. You could even raise it. Later. So console buys you time to borrow from the future. 
I could raise 4% of GDP with Consul. I've already got you 2% of GDP more than your tax revenue hit. Now, to, I would say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Like I said before, and maybe this is why I have some sympathy for government. Government in India is a really bad spender of money. Really, really bad. Everyone from the Auditor General to the person who's supposed to receive money knows that. We are so bad at spending money on producing goods and services or many goods that all we can do is trumpet the idea that we can actually are so good at taking money and putting it into someone's bank account. That we celebrate. We are so clever. We can move money into someone's bank account. Oh, gee, wow, fantastic. So I know this. And that's why I have that one trillion rupee reserve. It's government incompetent. So I'm expecting government to raise its gain. And in raising its gain, government would need to spend this money in ways in which I was assured that the outcome is consistent with protecting national wealth and national income. So I'd stop at 4% of GDP. I'd monitor what is happening. I'm not getting into which level of government yet. I'd monitor what is happening. And yet, if 4% of GDP was well spent, I'd seen the returns coming. I'm able to forecast a tax revenue growth in the future and a GDP growth rate that is you know, bouncing back in the future. Yes, I'll print money. I can. I'm a large economy. I can print money and I can print as much as I have borrowed without necessarily afflicting anything much on the current account because over 80% of the money that I will spend on COVID, which is why I'm not too fast about World Bank money, will be spent on non-tradables. Stuff I don't buy from abroad. Okay? So it's okay. And we can manage the inflation, but if I print money and spend it badly, then we'll get inflation hotspots and horrid things will happen. So first, use the WMA, then use the console. When you're satisfied that that money is spent well, we'll talk about printing. So financing is so, not a problem. Okay. So, Yemeni, Ratan's talks about um, the possibility of financing a larger fiscal support package. But how, what would be your assessment of what has actually been promised and delivered to date, particularly in terms of a, a means of supporting lively? So we've talked in principle as to what might be possible. What's your, what's your uh, evaluation of what's, what's been um, actually provided to date? Thank you. You just throw me into the deep end right there, right? Uh, you <laughs> won't even give me the opportunity to be polite. Uh, let, let, let me put it this way. Um, Ratan said that in a warlike situation, the government needs to raise the game. Um, and uh, I think what the Indian government has done uh, is uh, not Anyway, they haven't bothered to raise the game. In fact, what they've done is to accept that they are so badly failing that there's absolutely nothing that they can do. And what they are doing is literally the bare minimum of what they can rustle up, which was mostly in any case planned uh, and was already uh, uh, budgeted for. Uh, and what they're doing is trying to push it forward to say, you know, what we said we'll do in August or what we said we'll do in September or what we were going to report back to you in February when we present the budget. We'll try and do that in April, May and June because things are really bad. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're, uh, our ability to do anything more is stymied by the fact that we are simply not capable. 
Uh, and that's been brought home in the uh, narrative that uh, has emerged over the last few days after the uh, the fiscal package uh, was, were, or well, the economic package or the economic ambition, whatever you might call it, was was put was put together last week, which is um, in response to the question of income support. So, what are we doing about income losses over these last 50 days? Uh, and in particular, what are we doing about income losses for workers who are uh, clearly now minus an income and uh, taking desperate measures to make their way home to safety? Uh, our response has been, frankly, there's nothing we can do because we never bothered to actually enumerate them. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. Uh, so we don't quite know how to help them. And we'll open up some food. That's about the bare minimum that we can do. Uh, and, and that's about it. Uh, the, the response is doing more will get us uh, to throw money at, uh, uh, to, to, will take us in the direction of what Ratan was uh, sort of point, alluding to, the wasteful expenditure. And therefore, the response is, I'm not going to up my game to make sure that I get to the last person. The response is, I'm just not going to be able to get to the last person, so I'm going to do very little. Uh, and, and I think that uh, it really frames for me how the government has responded to the immediate crises. And what it's trying to say is, look, as a government, I'm not going to be able to do what I can do now. What I can do is to give you some promise of a better future. And so it's arriving, it's using this current crisis to say, here are the 10 structural reforms that I want to put in place. And these are reforms, some of which are good, some of which are debatable, some of which are questionable. But nonetheless, that's always the case when you put together a set of reforms. It's, these are reforms that could have been introduced into a business-as-usual economy uh, to move the game of a business-as-usual economy to the next level. When the time came for us to preserve the bare foundation bones and the foundations of that business-as-usual economy, uh, we have said we can't really preserve it, but we'll do some business-as-usual reforms in the, in the long term in the future. Uh, and as a country, we should be quite happy with that. And I, and I think that's... Uh, that's the crux of the challenge. So we have a government that's saying, I'm not really going to be able to perform the function that I've been given today, which is the function of ensuring that I am protecting the most vulnerable. I will give you some promise of a better future, uh, and you can just hold on to that better future. And, uh, you know, in the middle, uh, God help you, uh, we are, after all, a self-reliant nation. Um, and, 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 you know, that's that's really where the challenge comes. Uh, there are many ways in which the problems that the government is presenting, they're not unreal problems. Uh, in fact, uh, the irony in what Ratan said is that the government seems to be able to move money uh, into a bank account. In fact, what the government is telling us repeatedly is, I actually don't even know how to move money into a bank account. By the way, I've been saying that for a while, that if you think that you want, you can fix the problem of the Indian state by going digital, you're wrong because even moving money is a very complicated thing. I'm very happy that we've now at least accepted that. Uh, but, you know, this was a time to look for innovative ways of getting money into people's hands. And I think that is, uh, it's, it's not just for an economic reason, it's also for a moral social reason. Because in a moment of crisis, we have seen the fissures in society and large swaths of our society are now completely left vulnerable and are expressing their vulnerability, uh, literally voting with their feet. Uh, as a society and as a democracy, I think we owe it to, we owe it to our citizens. Um, and then we can build up an economy from there, but we have to get this basic foundation right. Uh, otherwise, all the structural reforms you want to do to, to sort of 
you know, move the economy forward will fall to naught because society is fissured. So what are you building and how? Uh, so, so that to me is my sort of first reaction uh, to the package. It's, uh, you know, we, we can talk about the nitty gritties. It's certainly not enough. It's not really getting uh, into uh, using the chan channels available to it to be able to get anywhere. But I see in it an admission of government that it is actually failing to do the basic bare minimum of what government is supposed to do. Uh, but it hopes that it'll be able to do better going forward. And here's my here's my long term agenda. And as citizens, we can hold on to that hope. Thanks, Yamini. I, I mean, Ratan, would you like to respond to that? I'm I mean, particularly thinking this this idea of, sort of self reliance in the future that Yamini um, talks about. I mean, how does that square with this this warlike analogy that you set out? At the start, this this idea that um, you know we'll introduce reforms that have a better future, but we can't get to who we need to get to. So you know we're not going to do it. How does that fit with with you know what you said at the start, the warlike analogy? It doesn't sound as though those two things uh, they sound two very different approaches. I think. I think you're on mute, right? Thanks. They're not. But that does not mean this package does not have a logical coherence. And perhaps the war that the government is fighting does not require it to fight the battles that I would like it to fight. The government has essentially done, as I said, there's only one way you can mobilize resources for any action you want to take. You can borrow from the future. You can borrow from other economic agents, or you can convert stocks into flows. And this package has elements of all these with one important difference. We have always taken for granted, possibly because there's this social democratic streak across many people who work on these things, that it is the government, the state, that is best positioned to do these things. That's not true if you're a Thatcherite. That's not true if you're not a social democrat. And in fact, the more conservative you are, the less true it is. So what you see here is a very coherent program where money has been made available by the central bank and by the government of India, the government of India, not the state government, we'll come to that, that says there's a crisis here, we need to borrow some money. We need to borrow from tomorrow, we need to borrow from each other, we need to borrow wherever. And I'm making liquidity available to you Follow. At scale. At scale. It's coherent. In addition, since this signals that it is not going to be the state that is the prime mover in this crisis, but the prime facilitator, in the long term, I'm going to make sure that we take a number of actions which reduce state intervention in the economy, including actions that have to do with regulation and law that we will relax so that they who those of you who borrow money find it more convenient to be able to use that money. And those of you who are borrowing money for consumption, you know, you have a provident fund, you have a pension fund. What I'll let you do is dip into that. They've done that. Your money. Please dip into it. Please use it. You know, so it's okay to borrow money. Uh, and I'm going to make money available to whoever wants to borrow it. Small industry, large industry, individuals, salary workers, everybody. But the government is not going to do the borrowing yet. 
In addition, I've announced a number of reforms, as Yamini was saying, and all these reforms have to do with making access to land and factor markets easier. And the dismantling or the suggested dismantling of laws that have to do with health and safety in the case of labor legislation. That's a large chunk. So there's a complete coherence in that political teleology. And then finally, also say that I'm going to have a far scene of, I'm going to have a public enterprise privatization policy, which I welcome. Because the privatization policy says the government will exit from all public sector activity except in certain defined strategic areas. But if you look at it in the context of this borrowing, they're saying, and I'm going to put public sector assets up on the block for you to buy and therefore prop up your balance sheet as well. And I'm going to give you land double the size of Luxembourg to relocate industry from China. So this is also an offer to the rest of the world. We are going to let you borrow and we are going to let you invest. And that is what is going to take us to our ultimate goal of what is it? Yeah, I mean, $3 trillion economy, $5 trillion economy, something. Yeah? Meaning a richer country than we are now. Right? Now, you and I may not like it, or we might. I'm not going to say which one I'm doing. But what I'm trying to point out is it's not by any means incoherent. There's a coherence here, which will certainly frighten a social democrat, because it's coming at a time when there are no Thatcherites left. And it is very interesting to see uh, this germinating here. Uh, this is revealed preference. I'm not saying that this was intentionally done, but revealed preference of ideology in the economic sphere is very welcome. And the more I analyze this package and look at its different parts, the more I'm convinced that this, there is coherence in this package. Something like the central bank being the first mover to increase liquidity sharply across the economy. Everyone thought, oh, that means the government is going to borrow more. The government didn't. It's announced a fairly modest increase in its borrowing program, which is barely going to be enough to cover the taxes. The increase in liquidity was actually meant to provide private agents with liquidity. And therefore, and therefore also remember, the risk moves on to those private agents. It might be that there is some light at the end of this tunnel, and when everybody has screwed up on this, the government will have some, as you think, ammunition left to take care of the small banks. But uh, if you look at it purely on the basis that this is all that we are going to get, it's a coherent package that puts the onus of recovery from this crisis at the macroeconomic level and at the functional economy level squarely on the shoulders of firms and households. Okay, so a, perhaps let's switch now to the moot. It's a cohesive response, this is Ratin's point, but um, perhaps let's kind of switch gear now to talk a bit about how that then fits with the role of uh, state governments. There's a lot of questions coming in, uh, both from yeah, people that, that are joining online. Um, I mean, how do you see the government's approach to date squaring with uh, India's federal setting, Yanni? So, uh, you know, India's federal, uh, fiscal federal architecture has always uh, uh, had a uh, inherent internal tension in it. Uh, and that tension has tended to uh, operate in the following very simple ways. States have uh, a larger share of expenditure uh, and the government of India has a larger share of revenue. Uh, and uh, the political economy of the federal structure operates in such a way that the government of India has across political parties uh, and for many decades now, 
used uh, its, uh, uh, it, it, its, its control over revenue to be able to try and direct expenditure at the state level to gain political capital. Now, this is, uh, you know, in, in pure public finance terms, this is about uh, addressing, uh, this is about equalization, this is about ensuring minimum standards, uh, for all minimum standards of public services for all citizens across the country. But in practical, in political terms, it has become a very useful tool to gain, uh, to have political control over states uh, uh, in the federal architecture and gain political credit. But the politics traditionally work in a more, much more complex way as politics inevitably does. And the Indian voter uh, tends to throw up intriguing surprises. Uh, the politics has worked, uh, as Louis Stillen and others' work has shown, uh, is that traditionally, even as the center tried to use uh, the, the levers it has to direct state expenditure, voters often attributed state-level expenditure to state governments. Uh, so state governments that performed well, even on central schemes, uh, usually got rewarded. Uh, in fact, one of the Congress Party's flagship programs, which is now very much in the public debate, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, uh, which was uh, really a Congress baby, was implemented rather poorly in Congress states, but very, very well in BJP states, even in the heydays of the, of the Congress government in the early 2000s. Uh, and state governments got adequately rewarded for it. What has happened over the last five to six years, uh, it, you know, has uh, uh, with, the, with the presence of the BJP uh, as a single majority party in parliament, and at least until this, this last year, a fair degree of political alignment between center and state governments over the course of 2014 to, 20, uh, to 2019, you saw uh, a shift in that. In fact, a lot of central government expenditure became directly attributed to uh, the central government, even at the state level. And, uh, you know, uh, this became a very interesting flashpoint in uh, in the in the in the 2019 elections as well, when voters were attributing central government schemes to the prime minister himself, which is which which was new. So the old tensions of maintaining the federal balance sort of got appended in this very new politically centralized and fiscally centralized architecture. And new new forms of tension emerged, even though um, an important political platform for this government back in 2014 was of cooperative federalism and giving states more room for play. Um, this crisis has really brought out those tensions uh, in a much more heightened way. Uh, health is a state subject. Health expenditures are very much uh, undertaken at the state level, although there is a central scheme. And there's a wide variation uh, in health capacities, the quality of public health systems across states. So northern India, many states in northern India look far worse than many states in southern India to draw a very, very broad generalization, but it more or less holds up. Uh, and uh, in fact, the nature of COVID is such that it doesn't break out in a whole country. Uh, it doesn't even, frankly, break out in a whole state. It breaks out in a municipality. It breaks out in, uh, a, a, in, a, in a local area. And at most, it breaks out in a state. So it's a disease that is, frankly, uh, really truly federal in nature uh, and therefore uh, has required state governments to, uh, to go above and beyond their own ability to be much more responsive to this. And I think the political tensions of centralization 
have played a very important role in the kind of political response we've seen. Uh, so you've seen the central government essentially invoking the Disaster Management Act, which is a command and control uh, uh, act in and of itself, and is using the Disaster Management Act as a framework to direct states in doing what they need to do. Uh, but you know, you can't fight a virus uh, with command and control, even if you have all the government's resources available to it, it requires a localized response. And in fact, funnily enough, you've actually seen states uh, that have the capability uh, to, re uh, they've responded to this virus in ways that are best suited to their conditions. And it's created its own stories of Kerala managing things relatively well, of uh, you know, uh, um, Rajasthan doing a relatively better job. So different states are showcasing what their peculiarities are that makes it work. And, you know, Kerala is much more decentralized. It's much more low. It's, it's a much stronger bottom up community structure. So it's been able to mobilize a sense of solidarity in a way that Rajasthan, I don't think has this. Rajasthan has been much more state driven command and control, but it's shown its ability to work. And states, therefore, have rightly been asking for resources. After all, they are dependent on the government of India for resources. And in an economy that was in any case stagnating, revenues that were owed to it, uh, to states by the central government had not yet been met. Uh, and so states have repeat, states don't have the fiscal and monetary powers available to them to raise resources uh, in the way that the center has and have spent the last 55 days demonstrating their capability uh, to do things really well, also demonstrating their failures. There are, there are parts of the uh, of the country which haven't done as well uh, as necessary. They've also demonstrated their ability to do much better on relief measures. Uh, even as the central government's packages have fallen short, state governments have in their own way drawn on their resources to put in social protection measures. Just today, the state government of Chhattisgarh has announced a fairly expansive package for farmers uh, what that does to it to, to their deficits is a big question, but nonetheless, they are they they have been struggling to try and find responses uh, in different ways. Um, but the center hasn't been responsive enough. In fact, it's done quite the opposite. Um, in, and in its fiscal package, it sort of announced with great benevolence that we have stuck to some of our commitments, and so states should be happy. Uh, and they have uh, they have increased the borrowing ceiling, but they've imposed conditionalities on the state uh, in order to be able to access a significant portion of that borrowing, which really signals, I mean, we can argue about whether this is right or wrong, but the political signaling of the center wanting to continue to control uh, remains very, very strong. Um, now, just two other very quick things I wanted to add to this. Uh, firstly, um, states, as much as they uh, lament uh, the behavior of the central government, uh, do exactly the same thing on their part. And Ratan, of course, will roll his eyes because we've argued about this often. However, <laughs> states are not great when it comes to decentralizing to their local governments. And uh, they've done everything in their power to withhold funds that are rightly uh, meant for local governments, except for the states that have actually done relatively better, Kerala being a prime example of a state that has stronger and more effective local governments that have been essential uh, in, the, in, the, in the state government's ability to come out on top, even though uh, to begin with, uh, the odds were against it. Uh, and many other states too are now slowly beginning to lean on their local governments, but haven't done enough to decentralize resources to them. So states have a role to play here, uh, which they need to play. Uh, secondly, states are also often uh, um, play, uh, states play their own political games with their own with their finances uh, and and get themselves into trouble uh, and don't do enough 
to clean their uh, to clean up their own internal house because it is easy to constantly blame the center for all their failures so there is a case to be made for states to also remember that there's no such thing as a free lunch and clean up their own internal house uh, but this comes back to the central challenge that uh, the, the fault line that this whole exp uh, 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 last 55 days have exposed, which is the absence of a robust institutional structure for negotiating India's federalism. Um, there, you know, uh, throughout the lockdown, we've been reminded of how deeply integrated the Indian market is, both in terms of labor and in terms of goods and services, and how essential coordination across states is. That is the role that the center needs to play, not commanding states to, the, to dance to the center's whims. And the absence of an institutional mechanism for negotiation and consensus building, in fact, empowers the states to play command and control, and frankly, also empowers uh, state governments to complain all the time about the about the lack of resources and and the center always interfering, but completely refusing to play uh, to meet their end of the bargain. So when Ratan says that you know you can open you can find the money, but you also have to ensure that the money is spent well. States have a critical role in ensuring that the money is spent well. And uh, even though I'm a great believer in federalism and a and a champion of state rights, uh, I do think that states misuse this. Uh, quite often and don't do a good enough job. Uh, and and lastly, um, one of the really one of the things that we should worry about about the politics of all of this is that you're increasingly seeing. I think this is a, just like first time across the globe in recent history. Uh, nations are closing their borders for the first time in India's independent history. States have closed their borders and are refusing to uh, or very often allow people from other parts of the country to move in and move out. Um, and this holds, I think, important questions for the future uh, of what uh, is the relationship between states are uh, and how identity claiming and identity forming will take place going forward. Remember, the critical reason why India went federal, even though we have a, our constitution gives enormous powers to the center, is because this was the way to accommodate uh, the multiple identity claims uh, um, uh, that, that, that India as a, uh, as a diverse nation placed India's people in and India's diversity placed on the nation. And uh, so, so, so states were a critical way of, uh, for, formation was a critical, and federalism was a critical way of allowing for that negotiation of claims. As states close their borders, uh, how this plays out in our politics going forward is something to debate and look, look out for going forward. Thank you, Yemeni. That's, so just to kind of build on that and link this um, discussion around the federal system and state response to the, I suppose, the question of the, the national fiscal response. There's some specific questions that are coming um, from parties. One about perhaps the ratting, to what extent should subnational be borrowing be made conditional, if at all? So is this a way that the centre uh, improved quality of spending that, that, that Yemeni, would that be a sensible measure? There's also a question for Yamini on this, the, this state level and subnational response issue, uh, asking in responding to COVID, are states going broke by default or by design from the centre of government? That perhaps speaks to some of the politics of these questions. So, Ratin, I don't know if you want to take that one first. To what extent do you think subnational borrowing should be made conditional at all? Well, I think it's inefficient in a crisis for the states to borrow from the same pool as the centre. Remember, India's debt is all domestic. 
And uh, I think the states are very foolish in asking for their borrowing limits to be raised. I, I appealed to them, and in one particular state's case, they said, oh, we just sent the letter yesterday. I wish you had spoken to us yesterday. They were being a little naive about this, with the exception of Kerala, which is playing its own game. Uh, what you need at this time, since the states are implementing a national COVID strategy, is grant financing for states. And that grant financing can be in tranches, as Yamini says, that the states, that we make sure that the states spend the money for the purposes intended. The center borrows at 75 to 100 basis points less than your average state. <laughs> the center should have borrowed the money. And then this conditionality based borrowing that they are saying they should have lent that money to the with conditions directly. But to give the states permission to borrow from the markets and then impose conditions to that permission, in my view, violates the spirit of Article 292 of the Constitution. But that is okay. The spirit of the Constitution has been repeatedly violated in recent times, so we have to get into it. Uh, the, uh, the second question about the states. I'm going to push for quick responses now so we can get through some questions. So, rapid fire, one, 30 second, one minute responses so that we can get through a few questions. Okay, well, the second question, I'd just say that there are, there are states and states, and uh, some of them are doing rather better than others. And that is how things are always in India, and you know, there's no point sort of trying to attach a value judgment to how well or badly they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what about this question? In, in uh, responding to COVID, are states going broke by default or by design? I, I think are states going broke by default or by design? Is that yes, the, question? That's the question? Yes, that's the question. Well, look, I mean, uh, states, uh, <coughs> when you stop the economy, uh, you uh, you lose revenue, and uh, the states are dependent on the center uh, because they signed off their rights by signing up to GST. It might have been economically efficient, but uh, there are uh, th that 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 comes with uh, that comes with challenges. So I mean, I, they, 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 if you if you go down the road of the, of a lockdown, you are going to lose revenue because you stop all economic activity, and therefore you could argue that states are going broke by design. Many states chose to go down with uh, go down the road of a lockdown well before even the central government chose to do so. Uh, but given the nature of our fiscal federal architecture uh, and uh, the relationship between the center and states in terms of revenue share, uh, the center plays a very important role in how uh, how willing it is to allow for states to to, to go to go for to go broke or not. And I think the center has chosen by and large. Uh, to ignore what the states want. There are many ways beyond borrowing. And in fact, just like Ratin says, that there are ways in which we could have found the money uh, for uh, to, 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 to come up with a more uh, ex, um, uh, more robust fiscal uh, package uh, in the current times. Equally, there are ways of doing very, very sensible expenditure repurposing uh, in ways that would have given a little more room for maneuver to state governments. 
uh, none of these are unknown to the government of India uh, and certainly not to the Ministry of Finance because uh, in business as usual times, they do everything within their power to do expenditure repurposing. The budget announcement gives Ratan and me something to do uh, on one day of the year. Uh, but to be entirely honest, those announcements have absolutely nothing to do with lived reality. So they could have found ways of doing it. It's not difficult. I know how they could do it. I'm sure the expenditure secretary and revenue secretary know how to do it. It could be done. Uh, it's a choice. Um, and I think the, cho the, the choices that the government is making are the reveal preferences are quite clear. The reveal preferences uh, are also for far less uh, federalism and far more centralized decision making. Okay, thank you. Let, let me circle back now to the kind of broader economic context and the impact of COVID on the, the economy. There's a question here from uh, Simon Maxwell, former uh, director of ODI. He, he says, Yamini describes an economy and society out of kilter. And Ratin says India can find the money it needs to deal with COVID. Is it obvious that spending on the crisis can deliver long-term change? And are there no choices or trade-offs? He suggests, it sounds to me that you want the firemen and women to rebuild your house at the same time as they are putting out the fire. Is that fair? Um, so that's, that's the one question on the economy that you can come that up. I'll give a second question at the, the same time. Some concerns around, um, well, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, a significant portion of the current non-performing assets originating. This is from Vipul Goyal. Um, and he said there was a, a number of liquidity enhancing measures, including relaxing prudential measures. So he's asking, you know, are we essentially setting ourselves up for a similar crisis some five years from now uh, with this twin balance sheet problem with uh, even more non-performing assets in the banking sector? Uh, Ratan, do you want to have a first go at those two? Yeah, I, I agree with Simon. <clears throat> what is uh, unfortunately even worse is that the government is not putting out a fire, possibly waiting for the house to burn down and wants to build the house of his so children. I sincerely hope that's not the case, because a lot of people tend to suffer very badly when fires happen and houses are burned down. Uh, <clears throat> so we have to let the fire brigade work, but I don't see the fire brigade being called, and that's my concern. On the second question, it would have happened in the normal course of things, except that the government this time has announced intention in the medium term to undergo a significant shrinking in this asset base of government to an extensive privatization program. So all the bad loans that they're going to see, since the banking sector is in the public sector, and within two hours of that grand announcement regarding a significant private sector program, the government quickly said, oh, we're not talking about the banks. So they'll keep the banks and they'll keep the bad loans, they'll sell everything else, the oil companies, I don't know what else, and uh, pay for these bad loans, which will no doubt occur. But in that, that extent, it is different from the 2008 crisis because this is backed by commitment to sell public assets. Hmm. Okay, thank you, Rastin. Same question to you, Gamini, from Starmin, but also I've got this question here from Sam Sharp from Save the Children. He's asking, is there more to say about protecting basic services during the crisis and the role of the government in that? Sorry, your voice broke. Is there more to say? Um, is there more to say about what needs to be done in terms of protecting basic services during the crisis? Right. And that's the government's in that. Right. 
Right. Okay. Uh, I I did want to just very quickly uh, also touch on touch upon the question on the NPAs and liquidity and are we going back to the mistakes just we made please, in 2008. Uh, just by saying, j just one thing, I, I don't think the two are comparable. Uh, the current crisis we are in is because we stopped the economy, not on account of deep structural failures in the economy. And I, I think that's why the response has to be calibrated in a very different context. Uh, and of course, you don't want to build a response that's going to create more problems going forward. But if you don't respond to the nature of the current crisis, uh, which is essentially being caused because you stopped economic activity, not because you encouraged the wrong kind of economic activity or, or, or you did it in the, uh, without the appropriate checks and balances, you're going to get into a whole host of other problems that are going to make a twin balance sheet uh, challenge uh, seem almost welcome, frankly. So, so and, and that I think links back to Simon's uh, question. You're not going to be, uh, you know, we want uh, we, 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 we want we, we want the house to uh, we, we actually want the house to disappear a new house to build up uh, but and we kind of know that the fire brigade is sort of circling around but we want to concentrate the fire brigade just on extinguishing one little room of fire without fixing everything else and as the people jump out of that one room they're going to run away and behave in ways that are very different i think we should be very clear in india that to me uh, the way in which the vast proportion of india's workers have responded to the crisis is tells you not just a story of desperation and hunger as it has rightly been told it also tells you a story of a people that are in fact in their own quiet way are protesting the state they are saying very clearly to the state our prime minister who mostly gets all of us to obey uh, told us to stay at home stay put he repeated along with other political leaders don't go home we in our states will find ways of feeding you People have said, you strip me of the dignity of my labor. You're giving me charity. If I have to live off charity, I will go home to do so. I'll defy your ask of making me stay and go home, even if that means I might catch the killer disease along the way. There is something in here that should remind us that people respond in unique ways when they are confronted with a crisis or certainly are being told that this is a crisis of, of, of mammoth proportion. And in that context, labor isn't rushing back to our factories when you say I'm going to reopen our factories. There are social networks, there are trust systems. Don't forget that India actually has far less movement of people from rural to urban areas for an economy the size of ours. And one of the reasons is because the social networks and trust systems in rural India do actually create a form of protection. So we have to respond to the fire uh, by bringing out different kinds of fire brigades uh, that actually recognize that the fire in NIPFP will be different to the fire in CPR. And so the kind of fire, the way in which you throw out the fire extinguishers, NIPFP has a law, has a nice lawn and lots of houses. CPR has a lawn that's not manicured as nicely, and therefore the nature of the fire might be quite different. So you may need five fire brigades in CPR and one fire brigade in NIPF. We respond to the nature of the problem. Um, so uh, on in terms of basic services, I think absolutely we need to think about this harder. Two very quick comments. One, while the entire very thin uh, health system in India, public and private, is only focused on uh, COVID, a disease that kills more people than COVID has thus far is TB and other infectious diseases that India still hasn't fought. 
I fear that we are going to see a massive outbreak of other, you know, diseases that we learn to live with. Wait for July when viral season hits dengue, chikungunya, the usual things that cause hospital surges in India. Uh, actually, we are very used to seeing what New York saw and got scared by because it happens in Delhi every summer. Uh, when that hits and you see a poke or peak of COVID, our health system will be more stressed than we need, than it was before we went into lockdown. And that also there are other issues, sanitation, schooling, a whole host of long term challenges. Um, that have not been addressed so far in the reforms package that the government has sent to us. So we need to get back to basics quite urgently. Thank you. So I've got, we've got about five minutes left. Um, we've got five minutes left, I think. Uh, and so we've, I can give a chance for one last question to both of you. One last. If you were to advise on stimulus package 3.0, you know, the next round, what would you like to see is one thing. And then the second thing, we've talked a bit about, um, you know, policy being developed along, let's say, you know, logically cohesive, but informed by ideologies, different ideologies in some senses. What role, do, what, what does that say for the role of uh, macroeconomists, macro think tanks in influencing, you know, if influencing policy debates? I would, you don't need to take both of them because you've only got one, two minutes left. Can you hear me okay? Can you, you hear me? First? Yeah. Yes, I'm uh, Ratin. So uh, over to you, Ratin. Okay. Now, I since the, since the government has decided on its particular path, there's little point in asking them in some 3.0 to do income support. Uh, they do it if it's politically necessary. Otherwise, they won't. So I want five things from the government of India. First, I want to understand what their take on this crisis is. What is the vision? of where the macroeconomy will be in February or March. There's no point saying I don't know. It's your job to know your government, for God's sake. It's not that the Bank of England or the UK government has not given stuff. They may be wrong, but you have to put your, you know, you've, you've got to tell us. Because when you tell us how you see the situation panning out, then you tell us how you want to deal with it. And that, to go to the building, is what credit trading agencies are looking at. They're not looking at those static numbers you look at all the time. Those algorithms are gone. They're looking at the credibility of your response and your assessment of the situation over the next three years. And the government of India has singularly failed to provide that. And I think that's unconscionable. Second, Yarun's point. How will you maintain and resuscitate the single market, which is clearly broken? Give me a plan. Tell me what you're going to do. Don't just announce nine trains will run on Wednesday, five trucks will run on Tuesday. Don't be an administrator. Get out of the fire and think about the country as a whole and how you're going to resuscitate it. Third, sorry, let me pick on this. I really need yeah, a medium-term loading fiscal framework now. I really need a medium-term loading fiscal framework because you cannot do budget making in this kind of a situation in a one-year time horizon. Repurposing this year's budget is useless and, in, and not credible. So please, let's get on with it. Fourth, the states, Ensure adequate public financing to them. Don't tell me under what conditions they can borrow. Make sure they have the money to address this crisis, especially human dimensions that he was talking about. Abject failure in not doing so. Fifth, please do not talk about reforms when your administrative capacity is so demonstrably weak. Fix your administrative capacity and institutions first, then talk in the present, in the, in the future continuously. 
if in 3.2 the government of India were to do all these things, which I sincerely doubt, then I think notwithstanding the fact that we don't have income support, we will be credible. On the final question, on the, on the second question, two sentences, there is nothing called a non-ideological macroeconomic. And there's nothing called a think tank that is any good, that if it's not brown-nosing and is not pretending to be a statistical office, does not confront the issue of ideology. It is not possible to think without confronting the issue of ideology. So the last thing I want is a sort of civil engineer kind of technocratic approach to issues of political economy, which are going to be the life and death of the uh, success of uh, countries like India and every country in the world to this crisis. Thank you, Ratin. Yamani. Thanks. I completely agree with everything Ratin has said. So uh, uh, since time is short, I won't uh, add, uh, I, I won't repeat that. I'm just going to add to his list. Uh, in the uh, over the course of the five days, as we were listening to the unveiling of the economic uh, strategy, uh, there was a mention of a commitment to strengthen public health. Uh, I would like to see in the next package at least some clarity in terms of budgetary support, uh, along with all the other things that Ratan has said, on what it's going, what the government is going to do to strengthen public health. Uh, in put its money where its mouth is. So tell us how much money you're going to allocate and how much money you're going to give to states because health is a state subject, something that you can't get around without constitutional changes, um, which is possible. I would also like uh, to uh, uh, for the government to tell me very well to tell us very very clearly. This is not their purely economics, but related to it. What exactly is the public health strategy for dealing with COVID? So where are we on testing? How how we use it? What are the policy decisions that we are making on the basis of testing? Uh, and what are the ways in which? We are going to be able to exit out of lockdowns and how will we prepare better for potential future lockdowns since our political establishment has clearly gone uh, down the road of saying the only way that we can save us save lives is through lockdown. So having some clarity on that will be very helpful. And lastly, what I want uh, is not waiting for 3.0, just a very small thing. May 31st is going to be the last day of this fourth lockdown. We usually get to know what the plans are just before midnight and many of us go to sleep uh, early because uh, people like me wake up really early in the morning and then we don't know. Should we go to office? Can we step out of our house? What's going on here? Just in very simple language, if I can be told one week before May 31st what the plan is after that, ideally for the month and not in these two week windows, which make it very difficult for basic decision making. So I couldn't decide whether to open my office or not. If I had a factory, it would be even more complicated. It'll help kickstart the economy and address supply constraints far better than uh, credit lines and credit guarantees from banks that may or may not be willing to lend to me. Thank you both. That's um, some really insightful responses. I think this, um, this issue of certainty and um, providing greater certainty actually gives me a good lead into the next webinar we're going to be holding, which is around navigating the fog of uncertainty in uh, the crisis response, because it's clearly you know, we, individuals, businesses, they want greater clarity, but there's so much that's uncertain about modeling the future of the pandemic that that's very challenging. But it just remains for me to thank uh, Ratin and Yemeni enormously. It's been a, been a really insightful discussion. I've learned a lot. I hope uh, all, that have all those people who have joined have enjoyed the discussions. 
and I look forward to uh, being online again uh, with uh, at our next event. So thanks very much, Bretton, and thanks, Yemen. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.